0: Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Well, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every human being a liar. As it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, Well, why am I still being condemned a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, Let us do good, that evil may result. Their condemnation is just. Well, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one, There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin.
1: If you have your Bibles open, uh, keep them open with you. Uh, We'll be looking at a slightly larger chunk of the Scriptures than was read this morning, so we're actually going back from 2.12 to 3.20. It's in your outlines as well, the full passage there. Before I begin, though, how about I pray, uh, ask for God's help in managing to navigate this pretty deep passage. Father God, please quiet our hearts and our minds this morning. Lord, help us to see uh, through the lens of the Gospel the glorious salvation we have in Jesus. But Lord, for today, help us to see what got us there. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks back, uh, I had the wonderful time of going on holidays to Byron Bay. Uh, it's an amazing hippie town. Uh, where people ride bicycles without helmets. Uh, kids roam the streets in the middle of the night. And paid parking, for some reason, is everywhere. I wish someone had warned me about that. But one of the other fascinating things about Byron Bay is that it's home to the most eastern part of the whole country. Uh, This tip of Australia is actually a tourist attraction. They tell you when you're there, uh, this is the most easterly point of the Australian mainland. So everyone's taking photos of just the open ocean. It's kind of funny to watch. But I stood there, uh, staring out into the ocean, and it dawned on me that there was nothing else out there. Nothing except a couple of little islands and then this slightly bigger, strange one called New Zealand. And then another thought crossed my mind. I thought, would it be possible to swim from Cape Byron to the northernmost tip of New Zealand? So I've got a map there of what that would look like. Would anyone be able to make that trip? And then I quickly realised, well, I can't swim 100 metres without uh, nearly dying. So I thought, well, what about the world's greatest ocean swimmer? You know, someone who knows how to swim with the currents and knows all the ups and downs of the open ocean, would they be able to make this trip? So I looked it up, and I found out that there is a man who holds the world record for the longest uh, consistent open ocean swim, and he managed to travel about 250 kilometres in the open ocean. It's pretty amazing. Uh, It's very, very impressive. Uh, But to put that in perspective with what we have up here, uh, the distance between Cape Byron uh, and Cape Ranga, which is the northern tip there, as the crow flies, is about 1,924 kilometres. So if I were to plot the distance that this world record holder has for the open ocean swimming, he'd end up about there on the map. Now, I'll admit, that's really impressive still, kind of mind-blowing, but still, he failed. He fell well short of Cape Ranger in New Zealand. And I think when we realise this, when we realise the sheer distance uh, it takes to get there, it should soon dawn on any of us who have this thought cross their mind as they're standing on the most easterly point of Australia. What chance do any of us have of being able to make that swim? Now, in today's passage in Romans 1, uh, Paul here is finishing off an argument which he began uh, in the first chapter. Only here in today's passage, he's demonstrating that even those who were given the best shot at making things work, right, the best shot at living a righteous life, even these people fall far short of God's glorious standards. And the sum total of this failure, then, at the very end of the passage read, is that every mouth will be silenced, including the most religious ones. That the whole world, every last one of us, will be held accountable to God. Now, specifically in today's passage, uh, Paul is speaking to the Jews, Uh, These are people who trusted in their possession of the law. So God had been incredibly gracious to them in giving them a special revelation, his direct words from the prophets and the law. uh, And they'd also been given the covenant of circumcision, which was their surefire way of knowing that they are the people of God. But this is what they thought would make them right with God, simply possessing these things. But the net result of having the law, uh, it ended up being a greater awareness of sin, as Paul says in 3.20. It kind of kneecapped them. It did the opposite of what perhaps they were expecting it to do, which meant that every mouth on the face of the planet was silenced. It's not just those who through creation know uh, God's qualities and his invisible attributes which have been made known for everyone, but these people are held even more accountable which means that every single person is deserving of God's incoming wrath. Now, it's not like Paul uh, hasn't already implied that everyone's deserving of this. If you've been here the last two weeks, you would know that, in fact, he has. So if you cast your minds back uh, over the last couple of weeks, you might remember passages like this one. Uh, The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. People who who know the truth, they've seen it, but they push it away. Uh, Sometimes to the extent where where their consciences are so corrupt, they don't even know they're pushing the truth away anymore. And Paul says that the world, therefore, is completely without excuse. Uh, Furthermore, they're without excuse because God's invisible attributes, as we've just mentioned, uh, have been made known to everybody, including little Kenny down in Tasmania. Everything God has done has been revealed through his scriptures, but knowledge of our sin can actually come without that. There is a sense in which, through creation, the whole world doesn't have an excuse not to search for God. In today's passage, uh, it's understood in this backdrop that, that the whole world is accountable and they need to search for a solution to our problem. And today's passage uh, is basically Paul's way of saying, well, look, if you thought that they were without excuse and that you were without excuse, well, there's one more humongous reason God will call you to account, the Jewish people, God's people, is because you have been entrusted with the very words of God. That is his law, his scriptures. You know what he requires more than anyone else, which means that you will be completely And utterly without excuse. And this brings us to the first point. If you follow along on the outlines, uh, limited obedience to the law does not make us right with God. Now, we uh, love our politicians, don't we? Uh, We love what they stand for, we love what they do, uh, especially when in hypocrisy they say something and do something else. Uh, The same goes for celebrities. So in the last couple of years, you know that we've been subject to some pretty uh, heavy lockdowns and other things going on. But when you see celebrities who can flout the mask rules and, and hold wild big parties, for some reason, COVID doesn't go for the celebrities and the rich people and the powerful people. It just goes for the little guys. This hypocrisy kind of drives us nuts. And you don't have to dig very deep to find it pretty much everywhere in the world. These are scenarios that that might tend to boil your blood when you see them in the headlines. They especially can drive you mad when you didn't get to go to your grandmother's funeral. Or when churches aren't allowed to meet, but that celebrity can hold wild parties. There's a hypocrisy where certain people think that, well, the rules don't apply to them. You know, or or they, they're the ones that make the rules, and so they know when they can kind of skirt them a little bit. Well, for Paul, it was his own people It was the Jews who were in a position of privilege, right? These are the people that had the law, and they were considered to be a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because they had in the law the embodiment of truth and knowledge, right? It was these people who were also thinking that their transgression of the law, it kind of mattered less to them because they were God's chosen people. Uh, more specifically, though, uh, we, what we'll see in a lot of today's passage is that the Jews thought it was their covenant of circumcision that made them right with God. Right, Circumcision to them was a surefire sign that they were indeed true children of God. Now, it's hard to give a, a direct uh, equivalent to how this applies to us here today, uh, but I suspect that some people treat, uh, for example, baptism as something similar to this. right? There's no need to go to church or read the Bible or or teach my kids about Jesus because they've got the insurance policy in place. They've been baptized. So have I. And, and that's okay now. Now that I've been baptized, we're, I'm cool with God. Nothing else that I do really matters. There might be a, a godliness or a self-righteousness that comes by sheer virtue of of getting your children baptised or you yourself being baptised. Well, in the case of Jews, uh, it was circumcision that caused them to think this way. But in chapter 2, verse 25, uh, Paul throws a spanner into the works. And he says, circumcision, really, it only has value if you observe the law. You see, if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. In other words, that, that piece of cut off flesh, well, it, it, if you don't obey the covenant that it represents, then the act of circumcision, or baptism even, it is not what makes you right with God. This isn't the thing that will actually save you. Your baptism is not going to be the thing that saves you on the last day, especially if it isn't met with repentance and faith. But... For these people, uh, it seems as though this was a common way of thinking for the Jews in Paul's day. I suspect this is why Paul is bringing this up. You know, of course, of course I'm right with God. He's not going to judge me because I've been circumcised. I've got the mark. I'm one of his beloved people, and I know that for sure. But Paul says, no. That's actually not how any of this works. What God requires is obedience to his will. And this is precisely where Paul reveals their hypocrisy. So if you look at uh, 2.21, Paul says this, "'You you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? "'You who preach against stealing, do you steal? "'You who say that people shouldn't commit adultery, "'do you commit adultery? "'You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? "'Do you you take the gods of other temples? "'You who boast in the law, "'do you dishonor God by breaking the law?' As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. They're making God look bad through their lives, through not living consistently with what God requires. And they do all the things that they self-righteously command others not to do, just like corrupt celebrities and politicians in the heights of covid Another way to put it, I I think another way that that hits home even harder is to think of circumcision in this passage kind of like a wedding ring, right? So this ring that I've got on my hand here, it's useful in the sense that it will show you that I'm married. Uh, I'm married to Annie, who read the Bible for us this morning. But you know what this wedding ring can't show you is how faithful I am, how faithful I am to her. If I were to cheat on my spouse and then do it again, And again, well, I've still got the wedding ring. What what is that a sign of? I mean, the wedding ring, it's a sign of my covenant faithfulness between my wife and I, but it doesn't really mean anything if I'm still married and yet doing those things on the side. If I'm unfaithful to my spouse, the ring is just a sign. It It doesn't mean anything anymore. In fact, if anything... This becomes a sign of my condemnation because it's a visible sign of who I should be and who I'm not. And the same goes for Jews and the covenant of circumcision. Right, if you as a Jewish person break God's law, then circumcision does nothing to save you. In fact, if anything, it becomes a mark of your condemnation. Uh, a sign that reminds you of your privileged status as one of the people of God who had his special revelation to you, which means you are further without excuse. You should have known better. And we'll touch on that point a little bit deeper uh, in a moment because for now, what I want us to see is that just like a wedding ring, circumcision and possession of the law does nothing to actually save you, especially if you're unfaithful to it. Now Paul makes this very clear. Uh, if you look in 228 I think I've got it up there, it says, "A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code." So Paul's saying here that that true circumcision. The true indicator of the people of God is one of inward change, circumcision of the heart by the spirit. But if you thought Paul hadn't pushed hard enough yet, he is not done. He has one more massive surprise to kind of unveil on them uh, by bringing up one of the greats of their faith. You see, just as the world's greatest open ocean swimmer couldn't uh, even make a dent really in the journey between uh, Cape Byron and New Zealand, Israel's, what I would probably argue their greatest king outside of Jesus, the man after God's own heart, King David, he himself failed to live up to the law's requirements. And Paul himself here in today's passage is not shy in bringing this to their attention. Now, if you listen to the passage, you probably don't remember hearing David's name anywhere in there. Uh, you probably don't mention him, uh, remember him being mentioned anywhere in the reading. And it's because Paul does it in a roundabout way by bringing up a psalm that David had written. The psalm that I read for us as we opened this morning. Uh, psalm 51. Uh, it's a very famous psalm of repentance from uh, King David. And Paul uses this in chapter 3, verse 4. It's the psalm that David wrote after committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. And Paul writes this psalm into Romans and he says, well, what if some were unfaithful? What if some people actually broke the law? And the context really is, well, what if some, like the great King David, broke the law? Will David's unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? which Paul replies, of course not, not at all. Uh, If I were to add a bit that's missing from the text here, if you were to go to Psalm 51 verse 4, there's actually a first half of the psalm that I'm going to throw in there because this will help us to make sense of what Paul is saying here because Paul only uses half the verse. I think he expects his readers to know the psalm pretty well. But the sum total of it reads like this. What if some, like King David, were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Well, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written by David Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. In a nutshell, Paul is using King David here as a prime example of how even the greatest of us how even the man after God's own heart failed dismally to live up to God's standards. He failed to honour God, he failed to faithfully live for him, and so he rightly sits under God's faithfulness to judge, God's faithfulness to bring about his wrath against sin. And the scary thing is that if he, King David, the man after God's own heart, fails, then what chance do any of us have Here today. And this brings us to point two. So the verdict at the end of this is that no one is righteous. So this has been really heavy. Um, After spending three and a half chapters proving uh, from uh, the scriptures and other parts, uh, proving using examples like King David, that all fall short of God's standards, Paul gives us his executive summary of the state of the rest of his own people. So he laser focuses in on the Jews, on the people of God here in this final section, in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And he begins, what shall we conclude then? Do we, uh, the Jews, have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already uh, already made the charge that the Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And that's it. That is the core problem. They're stuck under the power of sin. Slaves, just like the Gentiles, helplessly stuck. No one is exempt from this. Now, later in Romans, uh, Paul gives a few reasons for this. He explains how we inherited uh, this inescapable sinful nature from Adam. But for now, his focus is on putting the final nail in the coffin of God's people, the Jews who thought that their privileged status, who thought that just because they they go to church and they read their Bibles and they do all the right things, they pray the right way, they thought that their covenant of circumcision, for example, that their possession of their Bibles and the law uh, exempted them from God's judgment on the unrighteous and the wicked. Now, some of you, just on a brief side note here, you may have picked up that in three one. Uh, Paul says that the Jews do have some kind of advantage. So when you see him saying, well, do they have an advantage? No, and earlier saying, well, they do. It's kind of a bit of a contradiction there. So I just want to briefly touch on that. Um, the answer is no, there is no contradiction in this. Uh, in essence, Paul is saying in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, yes, the Jews actually do have uh, an advantage in some sense. They have a privilege of being God's people. They've been given the privilege of having God's special revelation given to them, just as we do here today as Christians. However, by the time we reach verse 9, Paul's argument uh, boils down to the fundamental issue of our rescue from God's wrath. And in that sense, no, there's no real difference between Jew and Gentile. There is no advantage. Both are guilty before God. Now, his proof texts for this claim that they are just as much guilty as anyone else uh, come from a whole bunch of Psalms listed back to back. Bang, bang, bang. Uh, And inserted in there sneakily is another passage from Isaiah as well. I'm going to read those out to you. Paul writes, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These are pretty cutting words from a whole bunch of different Psalms. But there's something very peculiar about these. You see, the strange thing is, if you were to look at the footnotes in your Bible, and then open up each psalm individually, and if you were to read all of these passages in their proper context, you'd realize that these words aren't actually aimed at the Jewish people. But Paul is kind of weaponizing it against them. The question is, why? What's he doing? These psalms, they're written in a way that separates the righteousness of the author of the psalms from the wickedness of the unrighteous. And a Jewish person reading would always throw them in the basket of the righteous here and not of the wicked necessarily. And so it seems strange that Paul then would use these texts that seem to be about the Jewish enemies, the people that that don't know Yahweh, the people that don't know God, And the Jewish people use these to say, well, it's the Gentiles, it's the nations, it's the people out there that will be held accountable. So the question is, what's Paul doing here? Has he forgotten who these Psalms are written for and who they're about? Well, I suspect that here in Romans 3, 10 to 18, Paul's being extraordinarily clever. You see, I think he's flipping the paradigm on its head. He's using these Psalms... To say that, in light of Christ, right, in light of Jesus, the only true righteous person, all the Jews, along with the rest of the world, are actually considered to be the wicked ones in these psalms. Now, again, if we think back to, to King David and his adultery with, with Bathsheba, uh, if you know the story, uh, it's from one of my favourite books, Second Samuel. Um, David, his sin is made known to Nathan the prophet. Nathan comes up to him and he he tells him a parable about a rich man who stole a poor man's donkey and he kind of, not donkey, a sheep, and he kind of made a stew with it and ate it with his friends and basically swindled this one little lamb that was like a daughter to this other guy. And when David hears this parable, he burns with anger and he says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. David himself identifies with the righteous and would never do anything like that. To which Nathan responds, You are the man. You are the wicked one in this parable. And in the same way, Paul's saying here that the Jews, the people of God, you are the wicked ones in these Psalms. That's the reality. There's no skirting around it. You are the same people who suppress the truth in Romans 1 and who hypocritically and self-righteously pass judgment on everyone else in Romans 2. And in this instance, the wicked ones are you in your own psalms. Now, this is pretty huge news, pretty massive news, because this means, as Paul concludes, that every mouth will be silenced every last one of them, and the whole world accountable to God. Every mouth, not just most, yours, mine, everyone's. This includes your next-door neighbor. It includes the barista who makes your coffee in the morning. It includes your local bus driver, uh, your lawyer, your, your, your dentist, your friends and your family. And this includes you. Every mouth will be silenced. Before our holy God, when he comes in judgment, when he comes and condemns us, saying, You are worthy of death and eternal punishment, the whole world will be held accountable for sin. Now, Paul's point I don't really know how it could be any clearer than that, uh, that no one is exempt. Every man, Every woman, every child is helplessly facing a harsh and inescapable judgment from an angry God. You see, if God's standard, uh, if it was the equivalent of swimming from Byron uh, to Cape Ranga, everybody falls short. Every last one of us. It doesn't matter whether you can swim 500 metres or 500 kilometres, you will end up facing the same fate as everybody else. But I think what's interesting about this analogy is that if you were to identify with this uh, swimmer that has the world record, uh, if you were to identify as a pretty competent and strong swimmer, uh, and think, well, look, at least I got a little bit closer than everyone else. I-, I can't imagine a huge amount of people making that distance. Well, if that's you, I think Paul would say this to you. Well, actually, you had the advantage here. Right? You had the advantage of knowing how to swim with ocean currents, You had the advantage of professional training, the fancy swimsuits and the team of people who will look after you and so on, which means really your fail just makes it all the more clearer that no one can make it. And if this is the case, if we're left with a 100% rate of failure, we're left with a really, really big problem. Because if even the best of us, the most godly and upright, who have access to all of God's requirements in the Scriptures, if we still fail dismally, then what's the solution? What can we do? This brings us to the last point. How do we solve this problem, the problem of sin? Now, I have to admit, when writing this, uh, I was pretty tempted to kind of leave the sermon there. Uh, The reason so is because I think it's actually valuable for us once in a while to stew on this reality, to really let it hit home, to deeply consider the total depravity of us stuck in our sin, slaves to sin. To have a week of meditation over this passage, I think it might do us and the wider church a lot of good. In fact, I don't think we really as a church do it enough. Uh, and it has it a guess that in any kind of sizable church, even in a room this size, there will be uh, a few of us, maybe even plenty of us, who perhaps look at all this and we don't think we're as sinful as Paul's assessment of us here in Romans 1 to 3. And I don't just mean non-Christians who, who think they're fine, I mean good kind of quote-unquote religious people who have walked with God diligently for years who still probably struggle to think that they're stuck in this predicament and think that it's as bad as Paul tells us it is. You know, that I'm not really that sinful. I mean, after all, I haven't murdered anyone like David did. But Jesus, he turns things around and says, actually, you are. Uh, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount that Steve gave a couple of months ago, Uh, Jesus takes the law, this same law that the Jews had claimed ownership of in the first part of Romans here, and Jesus ratchets it up significantly and says, if you were to look at a brother with anger in your heart, then you've committed murder. It's as simple as that. If you were to look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart, and you are guilty. And if you're still not convinced, uh, perhaps a a dangerous but extremely valuable prayer might be in place for you this morning. A prayer that God would uh, show you your sin this week. Uh, This is a prayer that's not really for the faint-hearted, but dare I say, it's not a magic formula either. But I think if you're humble and willing for God to show you your sin, He absolutely will. And it won't be pretty. Uh, It'll leave you perhaps even in a state of despair at points. But more than this, if you're stuck thinking still that you're not sinful, that um, this passage ironically then highlights the very problem that Paul is addressing with the Jews today. If you think you're not that sinful, that's a symptom of your sin. When things are going pretty well in your Christian walk... Uh, you may tend to slip into the trap of having a higher opinion of yourself than what is probably warranted. Uh, you may fall into the trap uh, of thinking that human effort somehow has a basic role in our salvation. In fact, this is the, the paradigm of every other world religion, and we'll highlight this on occasion, but can you see the slogan on the front of the thing here? Do your best. It Throw, throws everything back onto us and says, yes, we, we can contribute something to our salvation. But the Christian message, the gospel, highlights the absolute insufficiency of our works, the complete poverty of our works, the hopelessness of our own efforts to live a holy and righteous life that God requires, and therefore the absolute need of a saviour. In fact, when we we think about this uh, problem, uh, the problem of what I call total depravity, the problem of every man, woman, and child being silenced and held accountable to God, as 319 puts it, this really should shape our motivation for a lot of different things. Uh, evangelism, for example. To, to share with people, to help them find the only true liberator from our slavery to sin, Jesus. And there should be an urgency behind that because they are stuck just like we were. And this is God's great answer to sin, Jesus. Um, We'll see this next week. Uh, We'll see it in all of its fullness, hopefully, from this amazing passage. I think probably one of the greatest passages in the whole of Scripture next week. Um, Because after spending three and a half chapters outlining our complete failure, this is what highlights the glorious news of the gospel, right? It's only good news insofar as we understand the complete hopelessness of the situation we're actually in. So it's only after the uncomfortableness of slogging through the last three weeks of Romans, do we come to this point? After Paul has sunk deep into our hearts the big, big, big problem we have, does he finally push the pressure release valve? And he says these amazing words. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God Has been made known, and this is what we're going to be looking at next week. This is the kind of answer to the world's deepest problem. Now, if you're sitting here today, and after a talk like this, you're you're worried about your eternal destiny. Uh, If you're thinking, "Look, I'm I'm cooked. I feel helplessly lost in my sin. I don't need to pray for God to show it to me because I know it." I would encourage you to take heart because, believe it or not, that is the starting point of what it means to be a Christian, to know that we are utterly helpless before a righteous and wrathful God. Secondly, the the solution, uh, if you're hanging out for this one, is to throw yourself then onto the mercy of Jesus. No reservations not bringing anything in your hands, no claim to any kind of righteousness of your own. In fact, dare I say, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation, and I think you contribute pretty well in this regard, is the sin that made your salvation necessary in the first place. So you need to throw yourself onto Jesus, the Son of God who can freely and fully forgive you, because he has dealt with your sins through the shedding of his own blood. Not only did he love you, but he actually endured the wrath that was revealed against your unrighteousness, and he put it upon himself in your place. So I urge you come back next week as we look at the next part of Romans and we unpack this reality uh, in great detail together. Uh, But before uh, we finish up, how about I pray? us all. Heavenly Father, Lord, please reveal our sins to us this week, as uncomfortable as it may be. Lord, reveal your amazing grace along with it, though, and help us to never take uh, the gift of forgiveness that you offer us for granted. Lord, comfort those who are struggling here this morning and challenge those of us uh, who are comfortable. Help us to see how much we absolutely need you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.